scripture passage today is Genesis 35:16 through 29. Then they journeyed from Bethel when they were still some distance from Ephrath. Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Benani. But his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she buried. She was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed and pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve, the sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin, the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan and Naphtali, the sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad and Asher, these were the sons of Jacob, who were born to him in Paddan Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died, and was gathered to his people, old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Good morning, everyone. Thanks for being here. All right, question for you. Have you ever tried to honor God? I genuinely attempted to do so, to do the hard but right thing. In other words, you knew that doing so in this particular situation was going to be was going to be hard, but it was right. Only to finish second or third or fourth or last to someone who cut corners and practiced questionable ethics. So you mean to honor God, you, you do your best, you took the harder road instead of the easier road, and then here you are coming in dead last to people who cheated and lied and, and did it their own way. As a new believer, I, I found myself, I think I've mentioned this before, but working to this day, the worst job I've ever had, it involved wearing a full body suit, including a respirator all day, in a metal building without AC in the middle of summer. My coworkers didn't want to be there. Neither did I, I guess, but they didn't want to be there. They complained often and quit regularly. Nevertheless, I was a new believer and committed to doing my best to honor God and to be a light for the sake of the gospel. It was an immediate, I was at an immediate disadvantage because everybody knew I was only there for the summer, which meant I was disposable and not really eligible for insider club membership, which I, I don't even necessarily know what that would have included. Probably nothing awesome, but I never got in there. Even still, I did the best I could. I didn't engage in the gossip or negative talk and had the chance to share the gospel with a number of the guys. And, and if you want, I, I've got two stories that are spectacular that, that, that involve, you know, felonies of the funniest kind, bank robberies and Anyway, climbing flagpoles and stealing flags, it's pretty spectacular, but that's a different sermon maybe. But you're welcome to ask later. These are the guys I worked with. But anyway, I did, I did my best. Maybe the most frustrating in all of it, besides just sweating every day. You know, have you ever 
wearing a suit so that your socks fill up with sweat because it all that's just giving you a picture so perhaps with all of that as a backdrop the most frustrating and i'm not sure why but it was in spite of in spite of trying to honor my bosses and doing what they wanted maybe the most frustrating experience of all came the time i was accused of taking a too long break the people i had worked with had devised all kinds of ways to take more and longer breaks then we were allowed to honor my bosses. I was very careful not to do so. They had made it plain that was a big deal to them. And so I would, I would literally set my watch just as a means to honor them. So 10 minutes into a 15-minute break, which was really important. You know, some of you have had jobs where they tell you to take a break. You know, yeah, I don't really need one, but that's kind of cool. Well, this was a, this, <laughs> all 15 minutes were pretty important. You could take all the stuff off and go sit outside. So when the supervisor, the floor supervisor, came to me and told me to go inside five minutes early and refused to believe me when I told him I'd been out only ten minutes, it took all I had to continue to let this little light of mine shine. I was trying to honor God and live by faith, trusting that his will was right and his promises would hold, even though I felt like I was only making my life unnecessarily harder. I wish I had some great story to tell you about how in the end all of my coworkers came to faith in Christ and they got air conditioning for the place and it was awesome. But that didn't happen. I kept working throughout the summer, went back to college and haven't heard from any of them since except on the news. Uh, <clears throat> sometimes this is the life of faith. Well, in some ways, that's what we have in our passage for this morning. Uh, so we get in the beginning what Lauren just read, some tragedies in the chosen son of God. And then the following chapter, which she didn't read, is the lineage of Esau, the son who was not chosen. And there's abundance and blessing. Jacob, the chosen one of God, was called to trust God for the fulfillment of the covenant promises. Certainly, he'd gotten a taste of that a few times already. We see even a little bit of that in chapter 36. But there was, as of yet, no kings, no nations that belonged to him. He had 12 sons, which wasn't insignificant, but they were still sojourners, wanderers, foreigners, and they lived in tents. On the other hand, the report we get of Esau is that he, the rejected, was pretty maxed out on blessings and territory and offspring who were kings of the land. One day Jacob's offspring would know a measure of fulfillment of God's promises that would blow Esau's out of the water. But that was as of yet, even in part, centuries away and over a millennia away in full. So here's the big idea of this passage. If you remember one thing, remember this. The big idea of this passage in this sermon is that delayed, sort of a, a longer sentence, but stay with me. Delayed eternal blessings through faith in the promises of God. Delayed eternal blessings through faith in the promises of God are always better than immediate temporal blessings through a clear view of the offerings of this world. So let me say that again, and I'm going to say it in just one other way, and then I'm going to pray. Delayed eternal blessings through faith in the promises of God are always better than immediate temporal blessings 
through a clear view of the offerings of this world. And in short, what that means is a true life lived in faith oftentimes can mean suffering in this life while we look on at those who are living in rebellion and prospering. That's sort of another way to say what I just said. So let's pray that God would use this story to help us see these things and more. God, we, we love you because you loved us first. And we trust you because you've opened the eyes of our mind and our heart. That is to say, you have given us spiritual sight. Those of us whose hope is in Christ, it is because you have given us eyes to see and ears to hear. I pray that you would do that even more this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit, through your word and for your glory. Help us to look squarely at this text in order that we might be able to make even a little bit more sense of the suffering in our life, even as we live in faith. And we look on at those who mock your name and grow in maybe wealth and happiness in certain senses. And their kids are doing well. And we're the country music song played forward and there it played backward. And so God, let us, let us see in this passage, not the fake gospel that's always or that's often proclaimed, where we can have our best life now and we can come to Jesus and everything gets great now and everything will be better. But the real gospel, which says we live in a broken and fallen world, that you are Lord over and that you are working in constantly to make all things right, but that will not happen finally and fully until you return. And so help us to know again and afresh and with even perhaps more subtleties and nuances and clarity, what it means to live a life of faith in a broken world as we await its renewal. Thank you for this gift. Thank you for the gift of putting this life, this suffering life of the son of the promise right next to the abundant life, at least from the world's terms, of the one who rejected you right next to each other, that we could see this contrast that we might have our eyes lifted from our own suffering and our own wallowing and our own difficulties and our own despair up to you, the God who is Lord of them all, using them for the greatest good and the highest glory. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So to this point in life, in Jacob's life, if if you're just joining us or if you've never read Genesis, we're, we're working our way through Genesis. And it was the story of the whole world for a, a, a dozen chapters 11 chapters, and then from 12 on, it's the story of one particular family, beginning with Abraham, and then his son Isaac, and now we're to his son Jacob. These were the chosen ones of God, through whom God's blessings would come, and God's salvation would come, and God's redemption would come. And well, to this point in Jacob's life, it had been anything but stable and predictable. Sound familiar? Sounds like my life. (laughs) God had... God had made many great promises to him, and some of them he had tasted, even as he sought at times to live by faith, Jacob. God had blessed him. But Jacob's, both his faith and his comfort ebbed and flowed. It came in and out. He he was faithful sometimes and not others, and his receiving of the blessing of God seemed to come in and out as well. But, Grace, here's the thing. Here's what I really need you to hear this morning. It isn't nearly as simple. You've experienced this, and so have I. The Bible isn't subtle to this. See, the, the problem is the, sort of the, the Christian church today oftentimes gets 
things like this wrong. So, so again, hear, hear this. Maybe you've just sort of made it up on your own, or maybe somebody else has told you this and you've believed this, but, but hear this. It isn't nearly as simple. Life in this world, by God's design, is not nearly as simple as saying that when Jacob trusted God, everything was great, and things would only fall apart when he wandered into disobedience. That is not how life in this world lives, according to God's providence. There's some correlation. There really is. There is some correlation between living a life of faith and obedience and living a life of blessing. There's some, but it's far from a perfect correlation. Bad things happen to those who love God and walk according to his ways. And good things happen to those who reject him. In other words, we find in Jacob the same sort of thing we find in in our own lives. We come in and out of obedience, even as we come in and out of comfort sometimes. There is some correlation in our lives between our obedience, our blessing, and our disobedience, and our struggles, but it is not constant. That correlation is not constant, and it's rarely clear. Again, in other words, hard things happen to Christians. Even if we walk in exceptional obedience, we will still get sick, we will still have relationship struggles, we'll still lose jobs, we'll still struggle to get pregnant and parent the kids we have. Such is the nature of living in a fallen world under God's good governance. And this passage helps us to see that. Whatever you believe coming into this, this passage helps us to see what's real and true. More still, as we remember, that <laughs> not just where things are in this passage. Remember, this is one small story in the bigger story of Jacob's life, which is the bigger story of his family's life, which is the bigger story of God's redemption of his people. So more still, more still, more than just what we see in this passage and according to Jacob's life, as we remember not just the things here, but where they're going, where, where all this is headed, which is what I'll end with the whole sermon, we'll find the full measure of blessing that this passage is meant to provide. So we got to understand what's here, but we got to understand how this relates to where it's headed. So what we see in the second half of 35, I preached on the first half of 35 last week, what we see in the second half is that even as Jacob had rededicated himself to obedience to God, you remember he he and his family had some fake gods with them, they had some idols, and God had said, obey me all the way. He'd only partially obeyed, he'd come from outside of the promised land back into the promised land, but not all the way to the house of God, to, to Bethel, and God said, come all the way, obey me all the way. They put off their fake gods and they obeyed. So that that was the first half of 35. So what we see in the second half, even as Jacob had just redirected himself or rededicated himself to a, a fuller obedience, even as he experienced a measure of divine blessing, what we see here is what came upon him was not all of the fulfillment of all of the promises of God or money didn't start raining from the sky or What happened was he suffered. There's three tragedies at the end of 35. You think, well, man, that's awesome. He he turned to God, and clearly blessing will follow, but that's not what followed. Three things. First, his favorite wife, which is a different issue, but his favorite wife, Rachel, died while giving birth to their child. Look at 16. They journeyed from Bethel, and they were still some distance out from where they were headed. Rachel went into labor, and... It was hard labor. 
When her labor was at its hard, hardest, the midwife trying to comfort her said, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, that is, as she was dying, she called his name Son of Sorrow. But his father called him Benjamin, son of my right hand. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over our tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there even to this day. So Son of Sorrow was the name Rachel gave for her son as she died. And her sad death is certainly tragedy, which I imagine is obvious, but there's also irony. The tragedy, of course, is that she died while giving birth. (laughs) What was supposed to be an exciting and celebratory day, the birth of a child turned to a time of weeping, mourning. It's a tragedy that's hard to imagine. It was common, more common then than now, but still would have been devastating. But in the tragedy was also irony. If you, if you have your Bibles and you just quick glance back to chapter 30, verse 1, do you remember what Rachel said back then? She, she was still barren at the time. She hadn't had any, had any children yet. Do you remember what she said? You get bonus points if you do. She lamented to her husband Jacob. She said, you see it? Give me children or I shall die. In the end, it was getting her way that led to her death. I don't want to make too much of this, but I also don't want you to miss it, so I'll say it again. Getting what she wanted, even something that is good in and of itself, led to her death. Let's, let this be a reminder, Grace, in this. And, and in, we want our eyes to be increasingly open to the world as it is, as, as God is governing it, so that we can live rightly by faith. And this is a piece of this. I don't want to say too much, but I don't want you to miss this either. Hear hear this. To build our lives on and root our happiness in anything other than God, God himself is an invitation for inevitable, eventual disappointment and sorrow. Even a good thing, like having a child. To root your hope To root your happiness on anything or in anything other than God himself is an invitation for an inevitable, eventual disappointment and sorrow. Maybe the saddest line of all of this, that was sad already, but maybe the saddest line of all of this is verse 21. Can you imagine this? Israel journeyed on as Jacob journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. How lonely it must have been to bury your wife in a foreign land. And then simply have to journey on and spend a night in a tent. This is the story of the family of the promise. And it is also the story of all whose faith is in God. God is enough, Grace Church. He is enough. He's more than enough. But a life of obedience to him will include trials and difficulties in this life, even as we await all things new in the next. The second tragedy followed quickly on the heels of the first. It just gets a single sentence, or at least a single verse, two sentences. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. And his father, Israel, Jacob, heard of it. In verse 22, we find that Jacob's, one of his sons, committed incest. Such a horrific act, simply stated, single verse, few words, no commentary, no detail. 
On top of that, there's no detail, there's no mention of the fact, did you catch this? There's no mention of the fact that God's design for the family was one man and one woman from the beginning, not multiple wives and concubines. What does that mean? Jacob shouldn't even have had a concubine of his father's with whom to lay. Any way you cut it, this was a disgusting tragedy. And any way you cut it, it is a reminder of how powerful and destructive unchecked lusts of the flesh are. May we fight to kill even the tiniest sprouts of sexual immorality in our hearts as soon as we find them, lest they bear this kind of fruit. Tragedy upon tragedy. Well, the third one came right after that. The final verses of chapter 25. After a quick recap of Jacob's offspring, we read of the death of his dad, the death of his father, Isaac. Verse 27. And Jacob came to his father, Isaac, at Mamre, Kirith Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned, his grandfather and father. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. I was just talking with someone about this this week. Have you ever been to the funeral of someone who gave absolutely no evidence at all of hoping in Jesus? I have, and probably harder still, I've had to preside over some of them as a pastor. It is, I think without a doubt, one of the saddest places you can possibly be. On the other hand, while there's still a kind of sadness at the funeral of one who gave every evidence of being a Christian, that sadness is absolutely overwhelmed, at least it should be for us, by remembering the unimaginable glory they are in. It must have been sad for Jacob to lose his father. It is a tragedy in the sense that death was not the original design. Death is the result of mankind's rebellion. And so it is a tragedy in one sense. But even there, as the chosen one of God, it was being redeemed already. It must have been hard for him to lose his father. But knowing that he had been chosen by God to dwell with God forever and was at that very moment... Ought to have been a comfort in the highest. The text doesn't tell us that. But one thing we know is this. Kids, guests, if you're not even sure why you're here, I'm talking to you too. One thing we know for certain is that we will die. Supposing Jesus doesn't return first anyway. The main question is where we will go when we do. For those whose hope is in Jesus, which is the true and full fulfillment of the promises God was making to Jacob even here, For those whose hope is in Jesus, everlasting life. But to those who remain in their sin, everlasting damnation. And so here's something I heard this week as well. I love this. Even if you are 99%, kids, guests, friends of grace, even if you are 99% sure you know where you will go when you die, let us give you the gift, even today, of that last 1%. Talk to somebody. Find out for sure how you can know. Well, the chapter ends with a brief mention of this. It's just, it's just this. There's just these really profound things that just get a sentence. Well, the chapter ends with a brief mention of the reunion between Jacob and Esau. Do you remember the last time they were? J- Jacob came up to Esau and he was afraid he was going to kill him, and he didn't kill him. He blessed him, and and he says, "This is." Esau says, "This is great." After remember, Jacob before that fled because Esau was going to kill him. 
And here they are together, and, and Esau says, come on with me, this is going to be great. And Jacob says, ah, you know, if I push the livestock too hard, they're going to die, and I have these little kids. You, you just go on ahead, and I'll catch up. And he didn't. He never, he never went back to Esau. He, he just went his own way. And, well, just at the end of this chapter, apparently there's a reunion. Again, there's no commentary there's no words at all about the tone of the reunion. You'd think, you know, Esau, hey, remember how you told me we are going to hang out after I forgave you and didn't murder you? And then you just left? There's no, no talk about that at all other than it says, and the sons of Esau, or, or, or and his sons, Esau and Jacob, buried him of their father. That's it. That's the last time the brothers are told to have come together in the Bible and that's the last time we hear of Esau alive. His, we, we learn about his offspring later, even as we continue to learn about Jacob's, but that's it. In fact, this is also the end, which I'll, I'll explain more about in a few minutes, for the most part, of the Jacob story as well. He, he'll, he'll come back at the end of the story of his son Joseph, briefly, but this really is the end of his story as well. What a strange end to the strange story of a strange family who happened to be chosen by God. And here's the reminder. Here's what I think the simple, strange end to this this family's chapter tells us. That God's people go through hard things even when, and especially when, we walk in obedience. It's a, it's a clear reminder that God's people go through hard things even when, and sometimes especially when, we walk in obedience, even as we watch those who don't walk in obedience experience blessing. And so that brings us to chapter 36. I didn't have Lauren read that. I mean, I know who doesn't like to read a good genealogy, um, but I'm going to summarize it for you. Now, and I think this is important to say to you as well. I do think there's a standalone sermon here. And this might sound weird. I mean, maybe you'll get this, maybe you won't. But after reading and praying through it, it felt more like to do so would be an exercise in my pride. <laughs> like, can you do it? Can you really preach through a genealogy? Uh, I, and, and so it felt more self-indulgent. Like, here's a challenge. You can't do that, Dave. Yes, I can. Watch me. So I'm not. I'm not going to do that. It felt like more of a self-indulgent challenge and doing what would be best to honor God and honor you. But there is stuff in here we need to see, and I want you to get that. Its main purpose seems to be to provide contrast. We just read of this last section, really, of, of Jacob's life, Jacob's story, and it was a tragic one. Well, what 36 is, is it's the story of Esau and his abundant blessings that would come to him and his descendants. I think we need to see them together. We, we need to see this. For those reasons, again, instead of a standalone sermon, I want to finish the sermon this morning by quickly highlighting a handful of things, seven, seven things, six, six observations from the text, and then one sort of uh, summary of all of them. And again, for the purpose of reminding us that delayed eternal blessings through faith in the promises of God, are always better than immediate temporal blessings through a clear view of what this world has to offer. In this passage and through these observations I'm about to give, the main thing for us to see at this point in redemptive history of God saving a people is the contrast between the tragic experience of Jacob that we just saw and the prosperous one of his brother Esau. 
The contrast between the hardships of the life of the child of the promise and the abundance of the life of the rejected son. Between the life of faith and the life of flesh. Just as bad things happen to God's people, we see here that good things happen to those who reject God. Grace, God is perfectly just. He is perfectly just, but his justice is sometimes hidden for us, from us. At one point, it'll all be revealed, and it'll all be clear, but he is perfectly just every minute of every day, even though that's sometimes hidden from us. So consider with me seven quick observations from 36, and it goes to 37. 37.1 should be with chapter 36. Here's the first one. Does anybody remember the word toledot? Uh, this is the ninth. This is the ninth toledot. What, what does that mean? Because that sounds funny, right? Go ahead and say it. You, you want to. Toledot. You might remember that Genesis, the structure of Genesis is ten toledots. And it's a Hebrew word that means generations. In other words, one of the main ways to understand Genesis is through the different generations that it tells of. And the first one, you, you might remember, the first time we see that, that word is in two, chapter 2, verse 4, and it refers to the generations of the heavens and the earth. And, and so the first thing to see in Genesis is God's creation of the world. In 5.1, we find the second in the generations of Adam. In chapter 6, verse 9, the third, and it's the generations of Noah. Chapter 10, verse 1, marks the sons of Noah. In 11.10, the fifth tells of the generations of Shem. In 11.27 are the generations of Terah, which is interesting because that's Abraham's father. I would, I would have thought it would have been, Abraham would have had his own, but it's his father that gets one. Well, then all of a sudden things start to slow down. We get a bunch right away in the first 11 chapters. Well, after chapter 11, the next one isn't found until 25.12, and that's in Ishmael. In 25. A little later, it's the generations of Isaac. And in our passage this morning, we find the ninth, ninth of ten. And that is of Esau. The tenth we'll get to next week, and that's Joseph. But the point of, the point of this, why does this matter? The point of this is that Esau is included as one of the significant people of Genesis in the history of the people of God. That's the first thing to see. This one who was rejected by God and rejected God is included among those who received God. So here's the second. Esau, it tells us right away in chapter 36, verse 1, is the father of the Edomites. That, that'll become clear as we finish Genesis, why that's important. It gives us this curious line as well. It says three times, Esau is Edom. That'd be a good study for you. If you want, if you want something to do this week, re- read Chapter 36, verses 8, 19, and 43. Esau is Edom. And check that out. Well, the main point here, and the main thing I need to bring up for us in the sermon, is that the Edomites would go on to play a very significant and contentious role in the continued development of the Israelites. So the Edomites would be constantly bickering with the Israelites. And the Again, the key for us is to see the brothers, the, the line of one of the brothers would constantly be waging war and conflict and difficulty with the line of the other. Keep this in mind as we continue through Genesis or as you read the rest of the Old Testament that deals with Israel's history. Wherever we encounter the Edomites, we are encountering the seed of the brother not chosen by God. 
Here's the third observation. Esau took wives from the Canaanites, verse 2 tells us. Listen to these words back in chapter 28. We, we covered it then, but listen to them again. Genesis 28, 8 and 9 says this. When Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father. So, so Isaac said to his sons, don't marry these Canaanite women, especially to Jacob. And Esau heard. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please his father, he went and married one. <laughs> That's what it says. Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son. The very reason Esau married began marrying Canaanite women, and more in this passage, was to spite his father. What was clearly looked down upon even in Esau's day, and was later outright prohibited by the very law of God, was Esau's unapologetic practice. He took wives from the Canaanites. You got to see that. This was not a pro, this, this should be said in this day and age as well. And especially because Deuteronomy 7 tells us this. This was not a problem as some, as some have wrongly claimed because of race or skin color or some other prejudice, but because the nations outside of Israel had gods outside of the one true God. Why, why was it a problem to marry these Canaanite women? It wasn't because they were Canaanite per se, but because they had fake gods and would lead them astray, the people of God astray. The problem wasn't their nationality or heritage. It was their idolatry and sinful practices. Well, perhaps the clearest example of all of Esau's indifference to these things is the fact that he married Basimeth, Ishmael's daughter. Esau, the one not chosen by God to spite his father and to snub his nose at God, chose to marry a cousin from the line of Ishmael, the other not chosen by God. Esau chose to make a life for himself apart from God's people. But he was blessed. We'll see that in a minute. God's God is perfectly just, but sometimes his justice is hidden from us. Number four, Esau left the promised land. He left the people of God, and he chose to leave the land of God. In verses 6 and 7, the text tells us from, is from Esau's perspective that he left because the land couldn't support both his family and his brothers. It tells us that they had so much stuff, family and cattle, and that the land couldn't support both. But that's not true. He might have needed to move away to, to some distance. Maybe the immediate land they were in couldn't sustain both. But the promised land itself was more than enough. It had more than enough land. It was more than fertile enough to support both men. The move is important. The move was more of a desire to separate himself from the things of God than the lands lacked, than the lands lack. And so he went on and he came to a place called Cedar, Seir, or Edom, we see in verse 8. Because he quickly became the most powerful, by God's blessing, most powerful man in that land, he came to bear the, land, the name of that land and the land his. They shared a name. Esau chose to make a life from him, for himself apart from the land of God, and yet he was blessed. Grace, God is perfectly just, even though sometimes it's hidden from us. Well, in spite of these things, again, in spite of taking wives from the pagans, leaving the people of God, leaving the land of God, the land of the promise, Esau was still connected to the promises of God. We read that over and over. 
his descendants would move further and further away from them, further and further away from what God had commanded. And yet he remained connected as a son of the promise. And so for the sake of his father and grandfather, God was kind to him. A quick lesson for us here is that the closer that you and I walk to God, the more the people around us should be blessed. And Jesus even says at times at our expense, above all, we ought to bless them with the truth of God that they too can be invited into the people of God. Beyond that, we ought to bless them with divinely commanded and divinely empowered generosity and service and kindness. And so do you remember what I said at the beginning and have said several times since? Sometimes the people of God, the faithful people of God will experience suffering in this life, even as sometimes those who reject God will experience blessing. What this means is that you and I need to strive to be in part the means of that blessing. It sounds unfair, doesn't it? We we follow God and We endure hardship, whereas others don't follow God and they get blessed. This passage is a reminder that we should seek to do that and be a part of that. Not only do we do we not give ourselves to despair when we see the ungodly blessed, we we bless them in the name of God that they might repent and turn to God and know fullness of blessing and not just the temporary kind that will be consumed with fire. That's pretty cool, isn't it? So it's counter counterintuitive for sure, but you and I are meant to be the source of the blessing of the ungodly. Not as an end in itself, but that they might turn to God. That's awesome. Here's the fifth one. Esau had many offspring. He married the women he shouldn't have. He left the land, and yet he was blessed. He had many offspring. That's the point of most of chapter 36. God had provided him with livestock and beasts and property and wives. In addition, God granted many, many offspring. And what's more, among them were chiefs and even kings. In other words, Esau's children grew not only in possessions and number, but also in prominence in the land. Indeed, the text even makes a special note in verse 31 of the fact that Esau's offspring became kings even before Jacob's did. It was promised that Jacob would, but Esau's became kings first. In this, each of us are faced with a question. You ready? You got to ask yourself this. If you can get close enough, if you could, if it were possible, if you could get close enough to the promises and blessings of God to have life and health and many descendants and much wealth, Would that be enough for you? If you could get close enough to the promises of God to receive blessings from them, life and health and descendants and wealth, would that be enough for you? If heaven would have everything you ever wanted but God, would you still want to be there? You have to come to grips with your answer to that question. That's at the heart of the gospel. Number six, Edom closely paralleled Israel in its development as a nation. This is an important observation. Again, you seek to honor God. You seek to walk in faith. And there are promises of God for you in this life and even more for the next. You seek to honor God and and, and he will build you up. But here's the interesting thing. The one rejected by God, the one in outright rebellion to God, 
The development of his offspring almost exactly parallels the offspring, the development of the offspring of the promised family. Edom, Edom came to maturity. Esau's line came to maturity before Israel. But it's interesting to note that both nations did so in almost the same way. Their parents bore more and more children who acquired more and more possessions and more and more territory. And then from that, more and more promises. It's almost the same story. What difference does that make? Why do we care about that? The important thing for us to notice in all of this is that it's a thinly veiled reminder of the fact that the only real difference, hear this, be humbled. If you're proud, let this humble you. (laughs) It's a thinly veiled reminder of the fact that the only real difference between Jacob and Esau is God's sovereign choice, not any difference in inherent worth in them. Do you get that? If you are hoping in Christ, it's not because God said, man, look, look, Bill, I need him on my team. My, my, you know, I don't have a, I don't have a fourth batter here. Man, Bill, he, he's got so much in him that I need. Bill, c- come on in. You, you, you deserve to be on my team. Or Sally, man, man, Sally, she is just so good at keeping her home. She's the best friend. Have you ever heard her teach on the Bible? Man, I need, I need her. If you are hoping in Jesus, it's not because you deserve to be hoping in Jesus. It's because in your death, God's mercy came upon you and saved you. Not because of your works, not because of you, des- not because you deserved it, but because we have a God who is merci- merciful and gracious. So let me say that again. In, in the fact that the one who was not chosen, his family line developed almost identically to the family line of the one who was chosen. In that is a thinly veiled reminder that the only real difference between Jacob and Esau was God's sovereign choice, not that they deserved it, that one deserved it more than the other. And that leads to the the final observation. It's It's a summary of all of this. It's sort of the main point of bringing these two passages together, the end of 35 and all of 36. And here it is. The significant blessing of Esau... Again, I started with this, so I'm going to end with this. The significant blessing of Esau is meant to provide a contrast in this section with the trials of Jacob. This is perhaps most clearly seen in the very last verse. It's 37.1, like I said earlier, it should be with 36. But it's perhaps most clearly seen that right on the heels of this vivid description of all the kings and, and chiefs and land and of all the blessing that was to be Esau's. Right on the heels of that, the very next line says, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. He he still was a sojourner. He still had no home with walls. He had tents and he still had no place of his own. So even though Jacob was the son of the promise, he was still dwelling in tents and wandering as a foreigner and is described as far less well off than his brother. That would change, of course, but it hadn't yet. And so another critical lesson in foreshadowing then is that Jacob the chosen needed to live by faith at a time when Esau the rejected was able to live by sight. The life of sight demands all things now. Is that you? Do you, do you demand all things now? The life of sight demands all things now, while the life of faith is often one of patient waiting. Once again, herein is the main point 
of placing the description of the fruitful line of Esau right between the descriptions of Jacob's relative lack. We're meant to see clearly that a life of faith is not always a life of comfort, even as a life of rebellion is not always a life of tribulation. In the end, all things will be set right. But in this life, it is not always that way. And in that, wrap up, we are reminded, this is the life of the people of God. (laughs) This is the life of all who mean to be included in the covenant blessings of God. Us, as new covenant people, through the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here you go. We are reminded that we must decide whether we believe God's promises to us or not. That's the heart of all of this. Do you believe God's promises or not? Let me, let me give you a tip. Let me give you a tip right now. If you don't, <laughs> if you don't, if they're not true, if you don't believe that they're true, the promises of God, you're right to abandon them entirely and you're foolish to hold on to them at all. It makes no sense at all to live by lies, either in part or in whole. It is the most foolish thing you can do. It's the hardest life there is. To have sort of the conscience of a Christian while trying to live the life of a pagan is the hardest thing you can do. You're not really in the promises of God with hope of the future, but you're also pricked by a conscience that you should let go of if you can in this life. If you don't believe that they're true, if you're choosing to reject them, the best advice I have for you is with all of your might, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. But, and this is why you're here, but if you do, if you do believe that they are true, insofar as they are true, you are right to trust them regardless of any hardship they might cause in this life. Don't, don't, they don't, they're not true because you believe them. And you shouldn't just believe them because. The question is, are they true? And insofar as they are, it is right to trust in them no matter what. No matter what hardship is caused by living in light of them. Remember our Lord Jesus was not spared but hung on a cross. We ought to do that. You don't just do that. You do it, but you don't just do that. You do that in perfect peace even if your circumstances go from bad to worse, even if they crumble entirely. So I want to conclude then. Let's conclude. This is kind of depressing. Let's, let's, con- let's conclude on a positive note. What do I mean by living in light of faith and the promises of God? What are the blessings that are offered? In this life, you might experience increasing hardship until you die. But why would that be worth it? What are the promises of God? I, I'm, this, this is... I'm going to end with this. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9. Hear this, Grace Church. Have your hearts lifted. Put your hope in Christ and know this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Why is he blessed? Why are those in him blessed? I'll tell you why. You ready? According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. To hope in Jesus is to have a hope inside of you that is alive. No matter what your circumstances, this hope has been put in you. It's, it's a part of you, but it's outside of you. It's a gift that God has given to you to be born again to a living hope through what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To what? That's through what? Now to what? Through Jesus 
in his resurrection from the dead to what? To an inheritance that is imperishable. You're perishable. You will die. So will I in this life. But you have been united through faith to Jesus Christ to an inheritance that is imperishable. It can never die. It can never be defiled, corrupted. It can never fade. And it is kept in heaven for you. Well, you think, well, stuff can be stolen, right? I mean, it's there. That's great. But how do I know it's going to stay there? There's promises for that. It is kept in heaven who, or or by whom? By God's power. (laughs) That's what you want there. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It's promised now. It's certain now, but it hasn't been fully revealed now. It will be at the last time. In this, you rejoice, even in your trials. In this, right now, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you're grieved by various trials, so that the testing, tested genuineness of your faith. What is that like, to have a a faith that has been tested through your trials, even because of your faithfulness? What is it like to have the tested to have faith that is testedly genuine testedly you know what i mean test it's been tested and shown to be genuine what's that like i'll tell you it's more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire in this you rejoice though now for a little while if necessary you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, though you have not seen him. That's what it means to live by faith. You love him as a gift from God. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy even in your trials and sufferings, even the ones that come through obedience to Jesus. You rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with the glory of God, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Amen, Grace Church. Who knew that was in the genealogy of Esau, right?